Hello everybody. Thank you for coming to our lunchtime lecture on ageing and caring in a globalised world. I'm Claudia Cooper, I'm a professor of old age psychiatry in the Division of Psychiatry um, and I'm delighted to introduce your speakers who I think are known to many of you. Um, Alex Burton is um, an early career researcher and programme manager of NIDAS in the Division of Psychiatry and Kartikeya Tripathi is a lecturer in the Jill Dando Institute of Crime Science. Um, and we have been collaborating for the past couple of years um, on a series of studies, um, and what you're going to hear about today is two qualitative studies, one in India and one in the UK, that we thought were complementary and together told an interesting story. Um, and they're both qualitative studies involving interviews that were um, done by Alex and Kartikeya, so you're hearing firsthand about them. And we felt that together they tell something of a story um, about the challenges to the world of globalisation. The challenge perhaps for people who are left behind when migration occurs and the younger generation move away, and the challenge of moving to and ageing in a country such as the UK in which perhaps the health and social care services are not always as culturally competent as they should be. So over to Alex. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Claudia. So I'm going to present some findings um, from qualitative interviews with South Asian family carers, caring for a relative living with dementia at home. This was part of a, an embedded study which was looking at a wider issue around how we support independence at home for people living with dementia. Um, and we had an MSc student who studied with us who was particularly interested in looking at the, the South Asian perspective. So we oversampled this population um, and um, really looked at their particular experiences as well. And by England, we actually mean in London and Bradford. Those were our two study sites for carrying out the interviews. So a bit of background to why we think this issue is important. So the number of people with dementia from minority ethnic groups is predicted to increase um, sevenfold by 2050, compared to twice as many um, in the general population, in the majority population. Um, the risk factors for dementia in this group might be raised because of um, social integration, um, socioeconomic factors, um, less formal education, potentially worse employment conditions. Um, and another uh, risk factor is that this group are at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, such as um, factors such as obesity, diabetes, um, which also um, increase the risk of dementia. Um, so we focused in on the, the South Asian population and by this we refer to people from India, Bangladesh or Pakistan, um, either who were born in the UK um, or have, have emigrated from these countries um, with family um, because they're the largest minority group in the UK um, comprising of 3.3 million people and particularly in London and Bradford, in London that figure is 12%, is in Bradford it's um, more like 20% of the population. Um, and within this group um, research suggests that caring is seen as expected and uh, a moral duty and obligation in South Asian communities. However, um, family carers experience high burden, anxiety and depression. 
um, for a range of, of reasons, and these are around possibly stigma and a lack of understanding of dementia, burnout, and as I mentioned before, same as the risk factors for dementia itself, lower socioeconomic status. So previous work has identified barriers to help seeking in these groups, and there are four kind of themes coming out of the literature. One is around um, a stigma and a fear and mistrust of services. Um, and one of the, the people that we interviewed actually spoke of a lack of a word for, the, for a care home in his, in his language. And there's a real fear of admission to care home if people start to engage with services that it will go down this, this route. Um, and it's not something that people really want to, to think about or, or engage with. Um, the second, as I've, I've spoken about, is cultural expectations to care, so that moral obligation, um, and that they don't, that perhaps people don't want help or, or feel that it's um, not something that they can actually ask for. Um, there's also perceived or actual difficulties accessing services, so this might be around cultural, com cultural competence relevance of services um, to react to people's needs. And also something around memory loss being a normal process of ageing. So again, that lack of understanding of, of dementia um, and that if it's a normal process, why do we need to access formal support services? So this research tends to come from people who have not actually accessed services or have, have, have had a barrier to actually getting into the services. So we actually wanted to speak to people who had had some experience of, of um, receiving services, in particular a diagnosis of dementia from a memory clinic or for some of our participants they had um, experience of receiving home care. So we identified four themes from the family carers that we spoke to. Um, the first really reinforced what we knew already, um, even for people accessing services there's still a, an expectation and duty to, to care. Um, and that perhaps services aren't fulfilling um, the support that they, they need. Um, and this expectation and duty to care also really um, looked at, um, people were telling us that they were fearful of losing jobs um, or that their family relative would come first. Um, and so that might impact on their employment because they were taking time off um, and they were worried about how that would look. And also in terms of relationships, that relationships were suffering. And, and one of the participants spoke about his partner and him breaking up because of the, the pressures of caring. Um, the second theme was around this expectation and duty acting as a barrier to accessing formal care. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next slide, because that operated on three levels um, in terms of reluctance from the person living with dementia, the family carer, but also services not really being set up to, to cater for people's needs. There was also a perception or experiences of culturally insensitive care. Um, so the quote here um, is from a daughter of somebody living with dementia who she really struggled to get somebody that could speak the same language as her mother and that was really important for her mother to be able to converse and, and speak to the people in her own language. Um, and then the final theme was that a lot of our family carers talked about um, accessing support from informal social networks. So the extended family, but also in a number of cases, neighbours, friends, the wider community, um, to sort of fill the gap in terms of, of service access. 
So in terms of the theme of expectation and duty to care acting as a barrier, um, the family carer reluctance really stemmed around this, this bravado, this need to cope, this feeling that I don't want other people to see me struggling, um, and not realising that there were things that could be done to support them, as, as well as the person living with dementia, that there might be things that, that were out there in terms of invo uh, voluntary services, um, formal services, etc. In terms of the person living with dementia, the, some of the family carers um, said it was really difficult sometimes for their family member to accept care, that they wanted their relative to continue looking after them. And I think this played out in something that Claudia said, in that that was really evident when it was a child looking after a, a mum or dad with someone with dementia in terms of um, a clash between maybe traditions and in terms of the culture. Um, growing up in a, a Western society where you have a very individualised approach um, versus the values of their, their, their parents coming from different countries. And the final barrier was around the service structure. So the quote here was an example from a son of someone living with dementia. And he reported that the home carers were coming in uh, regularly to look after, to help look after his mum. Um, but noticed that he was around in the evenings a lot while they were there. So they decided that he was doing enough and that he didn't actually need the support of the home care service for that particular time in the day. So unfortunately, he said that they, they lowered the package, the care package, so that he no longer received the evening call. So in terms of, of what we might be able to do to support family carers from South Asian backgrounds, um, we think that we, we can develop culturally relevant psychosocial interventions to help alleviate burden and stress. However, there are currently no published trials of culturally appropriate interventions that we know of, um, especially in the UK. Um, from the, the research that we've done and previous research, we think that interventions should seek to challenge beliefs that seeking help is shameful um, or goes against these cultural expectations that, that people can manage on their own um, and that there's not a need to involve others. Um, we feel that they should challenge assumptions from the service side that people um, from minority ethnic communities might require less services because they care themselves and the carer is the person that's looking after the relative and that perhaps they don't need the interventions. Um, we also think obviously that services should be culturally appropriate, that they should consider um, language needs, um, anything to do with um, the person's culture and tradition. Um, and also to involve the wider social network. So I think often we think of um, a person living with dementia and a key caregiver or a key relative, a next of kin, but it might be that services need to think of a more broader um, network when they're working with people with dementia from South Asian communities. So in terms of interventions that are currently being um, developed and run within the Division of Psychiatry, so they, there is a, an intervention called START, which is a manualised intervention um, to help uh, family carers of people living with dementia uh, to reduce their depression, anxiety, and trying to improve their quality of life. So this intervention has been trialled in the general population um, and was led by Jill Livingston and her team. Um, and it's, it was found to be very effective and it's been used widely within the NHS now. Um, it's been rolled out across the country. 
Um, so at the moment the team are currently adapting and testing this intervention specifically for South Asian family carers. Um, so they are translating materials, they are using bilingual uh, therapists to deliver the intervention and thinking about adapting the content to suit people. Um, and there's also been a recent successful funding bid to actually implement this work in India. So again, cross, um, cross, cult, uh, cross countries um, to see if it works in other contexts. So Claudia mentioned as well that we are currently working on the NIDA study, which is um, new interventions for independence at home for people living with dementia. And so while at the moment this is quite early days, we're about to test it in a randomised control trial. Um, so it isn't specifically adapted um, for culturally, so in terms of language. However, the approach we think should be able to reach people from all different communities um, because it's very personalised, it's, um, it's to do with setting goals that the person wants to work on and achieve in the next six months. Um, and those goals can be anything to do with um, supporting independence at home. And the boxes here just represent some of the modules that um, our therapists could deliver with people with dementia and their family carers. And I think some of these speak to some of the issues that the family carers from South Asian backgrounds have, have told us about. So things around getting out and about and staying connected to the community and the wider social network. Um, things around accepting care um, and particularly around the person with dementia accepting care and carer well-being and support and communicating with professionals and how to navigate some of the issues that people might have in terms of accessing um, services. So I'm going to hand over to Kartikeya. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Okay. Hi, good afternoon. Um, my name is Dr. Karthike Tripathi, and I'm a lecturer at the Department of Security and Crime Science here at UCL. And I've been do doing research on cybercrime against older people in Mumbai. So you can imagine how I feel when I know that my dad has a diary like this, where he stores all his sensitive personal information, his usernames, and passwords. What you have to understand is that my dad is 70 years old. And unlike my undergraduate students, he, he didn't start using the internet at the age of three. So he uses a physical diary in order to uh, hold all his usernames and passwords for sensitive sites such as banking, online shopping, his emails, and his social media. Now that diary in the hands of a cyber criminal is a treasure trove which he can use to wipe out his bank account. What we do know from the research is that as global internet penetration has increased, so has cybercrime. The estimates for the money that's lost to cybercrime every year range from anywhere between 100 billion to a staggering $1 trillion a year. And most of the victims of cybercrime are not large corporations. They're what are called as home or ordinary users, people like you and me. And while the risk is spread across all age groups and, and genders, it's older people like my father who are disproportionately vulnerable to cybercrime. So what do we know about older internet users? Well, on the positive side, it is one of the fastest growing 
uh, groups of inter internet users in the world. But they're also extremely attractive targets for cyber criminals for various reasons that have come up in research. First of all, they have a relative lack of familiarity with technology, which is understandable. Most of them got introduced to the internet in the latter half of their lives. Uh, therefore, several natural online security behaviors, which are intuitive to younger people, are not easy for them to follow. The criminals also know that older people are relatively wealthy. Uh, think of it in terms of, uh, of the pension money that they hold in their bank accounts. And finally, what all research has shown about cybercrime against older people is that there's a great reluctancy on part of older adults to report their criminal victimization. It's largely due to a feeling of shame. What this means for criminals is that these cases are hardly ever reported to authorities, which means that they can get away quite easily. So we conducted our study in India. It is a country with the world's second largest population of older adults, uh, a population which is expected to go, grow to 327 million people by 2050. Uh, these are people who enjoy uh, relatively easy access to the internet. India has one of the cheapest broadband services in the world. And if you live in an urban center, it's very likely that you're going online. Like their counterparts in the rest of the world, older people in, in India rely on smartphones to access the internet. And why are they going online? They're going online for banking. They're going online for shopping. Uh, they are online a lot to stay in touch with their relatives and friends in, in, other, in other parts of India, or even other countries. And of course, they use social media to catch up with the latest gossip. So much of their use of the internet is just like you and me. But at the same time, this growing population of older adults in India is facing some challenges, challenges that have come because of demographic changes in society. One of the main ones being breakdown of what is called the joint family system in India. The joint family used to be a great source of care, support, and protection for older people in their, uh, after retirement. What's happened now is that with increased urbanization, you have more and more older people either living alone or with their partners, but not with their children. This has led to issues of isolation and loneliness, which feed into their vulnerability to cybercrime. We also found through data that the most common crime against older people in India was of cheating and fraud. And we expected the trend to be the same online. So we conducted our study, funded by the Grand Challenges Fund at UCL, in Mumbai, which is India's wealthiest city, it is the commercial capital of the country. And you have to remember that for the past few decades, India has had one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And much of that money has been generated in Mumbai, which has a large middle class population. So what were we doing in our study? We wanted to find out what is it that made older adults living in Mumbai vulnerable to cybercrime. To find that out, we interviewed victims who were between the ages of 62 and 77 years. 
we found that these people had been victims of all sorts of cyber crimes. They had been victims of social engineering. They had been victims of credit card fraud. Uh, they had been victims of online uh, romance scams. We also spoke to their relatives to get a better understanding of what was it that was going on in their lives before they became victims and may have contributed uh, to, to their experience. We also spoke to a set of experts, which included detectives who had investigated these cases, lawyers who had represented the victims in court in order to win some compensation from the institutions which had failed them. We spoke to senior management executive of banks to try and understand were there any shortcomings in the banking protocols which made these people fall victims to crime. And we spoke to activists who, who fight for the rights of older people in India in order to get them better protection in a changing society. So our findings were very interesting. First of all, we found out that a major contributory factor to their victimization was lack of proximal family support. We were surprised to know that a majority of the victims who we interviewed had their children living abroad. So their children had immigrated after receiving education to developed countries in order to find better jobs, which left their parents living alone in Mumbai. A role was also played by generally weak data protection and privacy laws in India, which allowed the criminals to access personal data of the older people, which facilitated the crime. And worryingly, we found that the criminals who targeted these older people were highly motivated and organized. There was evidence of specialist gangs which target only older people, knowing that their behavior online will be less secure than a younger person. So these were not some fly-by-night operators, but dedicated gangs who target only older people in Mumbai. Our participants also complained that they there was a lack of institutional support, both from the police and the banks, leading up to the victimization and post-victimization. They found it hard to lodge their complaints. Often they had to take the support of lawyers in order for the banks and the police to listen to them. But here we must bear in mind that the police in Mumbai is overwhelmed by the number of cybercrime cases that are taking place, not just against older people, but generally in the population and they find their resources extremely stretched in order to respond. Perhaps the most moving part of our study was finding out the impact that the cybercrime had upon our participants. We realized that in many cases, they had lost their life savings, or money that they had put aside for emergencies such as medical uh, cases. This left them with persistent and unresolved feelings of shame, anxiety, and depression. These feelings lasted months, and in some cases, even years after the actual victimization. We came to know that all our participants were professionals who had led extremely successful and rewarding lives. They had never been victims of a crime in their life, and they felt really shocked when they were victimized online post-retirement. 
Generally, it led to their withdrawal from uh, most online activities. This also meant that they were banking less online, they were shopping less, and also they were not in touch with their relatives anymore, which further exacerbated the feelings of loneliness and isolation. Having done this study in Mumbai, we continue to do work on it here in the UK, where, where again, it is a very serious problem. We're trying to understand what factors make older people in this country vulnerable to cybercrime. We have to understand that banks are increasingly closing their high street branches, forcing people to go online to, to carry out their commercial activities. So in a study which is funded by the Dawes Center for Future Crimes, we are working with banks, we are working with police, and we are working with rights groups in the UK to find ways to increase reporting of this crime by older people and to safeguard them online so that they can continue to use the internet safely and enjoy it. Thank you. Um, does anybody have a question? Okay. Um, well, Kartikeo, I was, I was, the, the last slide is um, very interesting, isn't it? Because that's about the work that is um, going on. Um, and you're right at the beginning of that. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about your, your methods and what you're doing? Absolutely. So we're starting with the scoping study. Uh, where we're trying to find out what exists in the literature to help us understand the factors which make older people vulnerable to cybercrime. And I've been speaking to uh, police officers, to uh, people who work in NGOs, and people who've been victims of cybercrime. And we've come across some shocking details. For example, uh, the police found that there was a suckers list of 160,000 people here in the UK which was passed around international gangs. And these included names, addresses, and emails of older people who have already fallen victim to a cybercrime. So once this list is passed around uh, different gangs, what started happening was that the people who were on these lists started getting tons and tons of mail, lots of spam. And you have to understand that it is hard for, uh, for people of a certain age to uh, understand what's going online. It cluttered their inbox, so they started missing emails from their friends and family. So the idea we're getting is that it is a serious problem. Often, large amounts of money are lost by victims, but we see the same trend. The victims blame themselves. Uh, they have a feeling of shame. They do not want to report it. Uh, there's a feeling of having done something wrong in their old age, which they do not want to talk about to relatives and not at all to the authorities. So the amount of crime that takes place may be vastly underreported, and that's where we are. Thank you. Oh, there we are. That has inspired lots of people. Right. Who should we, should we go to this gentleman first here, as you're near? I um, um, just want to go towards your study because it's very interesting, and especially coming from a cultural kind of aspect as to how would you try to um, encourage like the elderly to be like aware and educated and also how would you try to approach them in like educated them because like you said in your um, lecture about they would feel shame 
So how would you try to um, approach it and try to negate that chain? Um, how how um, rights groups are approaching this? So that's my question. So there are a number of awareness campaigns which are being run um, through NGOs here in the UK, but the main the main issue that remains is removing the stigma attached to um, to a feeling that you somehow played a part in your own victimization. Because many of these scams are social engineering scams. Or if you look at romance scams, the victim often feels that they played a part and they were not careful enough or they were duped knowingly into parting with their money. So it's those kind of, of associations that we need to remove for people to be able to come forward and recognize, no, this was a crime, the person behind it is a criminal, and I need to report it to the authorities so that something can be done. But that's, that's very hard to do uh, right now. Thank you. Well, there were some other questions, weren't there? Who else had a question? I think you did, didn't you? Um, did you eh? the it's the same question. Yeah. All right, there we are, about what? Yes, OK. Oh, hang on. In that case, wait for the mic before you add something. Thank you. So in terms of you are telling that they don't really want to talk about it, but can we sort of uh, when person, aged person, is going to use a computer, social media, or anything like that, yes, they do have this sense of proudness of them, of them but how can we teach them really that these things aren't okay, you know, bringing them awareness, sort of giving them a book, or having small, like short films to explain them all, all this stuff, because I do have, you know, my parents, they aren't aged as your dad, but they still don't understand it. Like, how can I tell them, like, introduce them the information that will make them understand? Okay, this is extremely hard, because it's about bringing about some sort of institutional change. Like I said in, in my presentation, intuitively it's much harder for older people to interact with technology which wasn't really designed keeping age in mind. And that's where a lot more work needs to be done. For example, this, um, if, if I was told by, uh, by a banker that if there's an older person who comes into the branch every Thursday and withdraws 100 pounds for three years, and if he comes in one day and asks for 7,000 pounds, there's someone who will have a chat with him and ask him what's going on. Why are, you, why are you withdrawing so much more money? But the same person can go online and make a transaction for 70,000 pounds and no, no alarm would be raised. So those are the sort of areas in which we need to start thinking and recognize that older people are are, are a group which needs greater care and protection online and redesign those systems. Okay, any other questions or, yes? Thank you. Uh, my question is for the first speaker. I'm, I'm sorry I've forgotten your name. Alex. Alex. Um, I'm I mean, I, I, I caring for a 70-year-old for a 70, 70 retired, retired GP father with, with uh, Alzheimer's, um, and I have some questions sort of deriving from my own experience, but I, I might put those to you separately later. Um, I, I wonder if um, there is, I mean, you, you talked about some of the culturally specific um, 
uh, attitudes on behalf of um, what do we call them? Clients, patients, the 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 the, the mm. elderly people being cared for, um, uh, and I'm wondering how much work is being done either by the service providers or by sort of groups within these communities to to actually to actually change the attitudes of the uh, patients themselves mm. with respect to what they expect of their families and with respect to perhaps what they expect of their carers and how they could perhaps be more open-minded to carers who don't speak their language and so on, although it does become more difficult as they get older and in the case of my father, you know, he's, he's reverting to Gujarati. Mm. I think the answer is we don't really know, do we, how much has been done to actually speak to the person with dementia and challenge those, those attitudes. And I think one of the issues as well is that often people present um, at a much later stage um, in their journey of, of being diagnosed with dementia. Um, so it might be quite difficult to start those conversations when people are very reluctant to, to access care earlier on. Um, so I think, yeah, pe people don't access the services potentially um, until things have, have gone a bit, a bit further down the line. Um, I don't know, Claudia, whether there's anything you want to add to that, because Claudia works in a memory service. So. Yes, I, I think things... There are various different forces, really. I think one of the positives is that we're moving away. There was a sort of early message, as there often is in research. Um, the early message was that um, black and minority ethnic communities, which is, itself is a label that has been criticised a lot recently, sort of almost look after their own, that in a way it kind of gave permission to services not to be culturally appropriate because there was this idea that actually certain communities don't wish to use our services. And um, there has been quite a bit of research now which has debunked that and said, no, actually, people don't use our services because our services are not culturally appropriate, um, not um, because they don't want to. Um, and, of course, this isn't a static um, population. Um, the um, extent um, that the views and attitudes of um, BME carers are, you know, there are generational effects. So in a lot of our interviews, um, people were saying that the very traditional attitude of um, we don't use outside help was very much their parents um, mm. who they were caring for. That was how they saw it. Um, but the um, daughters and sons had a had a slightly different view, which took account both of the of the home culture of the country that they were originally from, and also um, from a UK perspective. And that was something that was very difficult. I think one of the forces that's perhaps shifting against us in this is austerity, um, because certainly some of the examples that we uncovered in this research, um, essentially, if people are reluctant to have help in the cash-strapped world where we are, sometimes the move is too quickly um, towards... What a lovely baby. <laughs> I've been... <laughs> anyway, sorry, distracted. Um, completely distracted, actually. Um, but we, we, we shift too quickly, perhaps, to, oh, right, you don't want help, fine, OK, we'll move on to the next person. Um, whereas I think perhaps 10 years ago, when there was a little bit... Um, less stress in the system, people might have been able to have conversations. Because actually people often say to me, no, I don't want to come to an appointment. But actually when you explore a little bit, sometimes that can become a yes. Hi.
Hi, um, first of all, I just want to say that was a great talk, found it really interesting. My question is for Alex. You mentioned how there would be a culturally relevant intervention. My question to you is how do you exactly define a culturally relevant intervention? And how do you seek to change the attitudes and opinions of the people who are obviously going to benefit from this, who are rigid in their mindset that actually mental health interventions or any kind of care of any kind is simply against their way of living how do you go about changing it because i feel like a lot of people talk about making care accessible for bme people but i feel like that there are no plans there's no substance behind it so how would you actually go about implementing a culturally relevant intervention well i think the first thing that we need to do is is try and speak to those people directly as we've done in this study and, and find out um you know, what are the issues, what things do these interventions need to, to take into account um, and really use that information going forward. I think we probably need to work more with voluntary sector organisations and um, organisations that are more community-based um, to try and, and put the messages in there about the importance of seeking help. Um, I think... Obviously, there are key things that we can, we can look at in terms of advertising this through GP practices, for example, or perhaps for services that people may more readily access. So I think going to a GP would be more acceptable, for example, than perhaps seeing a psychiatrist or going to a, a memory service in itself. So there could be things that we could do within more primary care, um, voluntary sector, as I say, um, and yeah, really just consulting everybody to try and work out what these barriers are. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. I'm not sure if this is really um, a question that I can ask you in this form here, in this format, but basically it's about austerity, which you mentioned, Alex, okay. and in, and, or whoever did mention it. <coughs> But there's such um, an issue, really, I think, as well about uh, the culture in services, which is, seems to me, certainly when I've tried to access them with an, for an elderly parent, set up to make so many hoops to jump through, mm -hmm. to make it so very difficult to access services, whatever your you know, home culture is, that that in itself, I think, is a huge issue that um, I think... Um, makes it sort of almost like a ripple effect mm. of uh, at each level of difficulty in an individual person's life there's another hoop to jump over and another and another and another and I think a lot of people just would give up mm. especially if they do have any kind of backing at home because it seems insuperable. Mm. Yes I, I think this is one of the most stressful things for carers you know I was a carer for five years for my late wife um, and one of the most stressful things for me was finding the right care services. I mean, you know, I, I looked after a lot of the time, but I had an agency coming sometimes during the day. And sometimes, you know, the carer would arrive and, you know, you'd go out and be somewhere and they'd phone you up and say, the carer can't cope, you know, will you come back? Um, and then I tried to put her in a, a care home and, uh, you know, sometimes the, there would be a place in the care home and you'd take, take her along. And uh, then, you know, when they saw how difficult she was, the, the care home place would be quietly withdrawn. You know, this, this is a big stress, I think, on carers, mm -hmm. finding the right services. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the thing you should say. 
Okay, thank you. And in fact, within the NIDAS um, study, um, we are at the moment um, developing an intervention, a training and support intervention for home carers um, to support them in um, managing clients with dementia. Um, and I think there are some very key issues which between you, you have um, referred to. Um, and I do think that um, for people from any culture and any background, we all have basic needs when we access a service when we are in distress. Um, and I think people answering the phone, being warm, empathic, um, and feeling that people are interested and have time to talk um, gets you quite a long way. Um, but beyond that, I think there is a role then for um, giving people some guidance about what is culturally competent. And, the reason behind the qualitative work we've done is to begin to talk to people about what feels culturally competent and what clearly does not. And there were some very striking um, examples in the work that we're, we're learning from. Ah, right. Yes, that was very good sign language <laughs> then. So, so uh, thank you very much um, for coming. And thank you to our two speakers, um, Kartikeya and um, Alex, and for all your interesting questions. Thank you. Thank you.